Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of The Political Party featuring Tom Tugendhat, the Conservative Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, specifically to talk about the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Tom has been on the show before to discuss other things. And as you will know, if you're a regular listener and you've heard Tom on the show before, as well as being chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, he also served in Afghanistan with the British Army. That gives him a unique perspective um, from a foreign affairs point of view, but from a personal point of view about what this decision means, why it's been taken, and in his view, and in many others' view, uh, why it is the wrong decision. At times, this is clearly emotional and raw. I mean, I think it is for all of us when you see that footage of uh, the people clinging to the plane as it leaves Kabul. But for Tom specifically, and you may have seen Ben Wallace on LBC, um, the Secretary of State for Defence, himself has served in the armed forces, becoming very emotional about this because they know what it means. They really know what it means. They know people there. And uh, Tom is always uh, kind of good humoured and uh, very articulate. But there are times in this conversation where it's clearly very emotional. So I did begin by asking Tom that for him, people like him, Ben Wallace, who've served in the armed forces, for Tom specifically, having served in Afghanistan, that this decision and seeing the footage must be particularly terrible. Delighted to be joined by a friend of the show and chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat. Tom your fantastic article in the Times has been getting a lot of uh, attention, and rightly so, for describing our withdrawal from Afghanistan as the biggest foreign policy mistake since Suez. Before we come on to that as an assessment, I mean, this is personal for you, isn't it? As well as your political outlook, you served in Afghanistan with the armed forces. So this must be particularly distressing for people like yourself. I mean, people saw Ben Wallace on LBC and how emotional he became. The, you know, part of you is a politician, another part of you, people may know he's also a human being and this just must be terrible for you to see well it's absolutely heartbreaking i mean i i'm you know like many people who served in afghanistan i'm getting emails and, and text messages from uh, friends i served with interpreters afghan soldiers members of the special forces that we trained police officers ministers all those people who i worked with over four years you know i spent a year as the uh, working in the National Security Council in Kabul, I was one of two foreigners trying to help set up a National Security Council process in the presidential palace. And then I went down to Helmand for a year uh, to help set up the governor uh, in, in Helmand and then spent two years doing combat operations. And, and, and over those four years, you know, you meet people, you become friends, you, you, you stay in touch. And some of them I've seen in London, some of them, you know, some of them I've seen elsewhere. I mean, it's... It, it's heartbreaking. I'm, I, you know, these people are getting in touch and saying, is there anything you can do? And some of them are saying, look, there's nothing you can do, but I'll never see you again. Thank you and goodbye. So these are people I mean, that are still there. Right. So, you know, my friends in Lashkagar, I, I mean, I've been getting messages off them periodically over the last few of the last few days and they've been telling me what's going on they've been sending photographs if they've been able to go outside and some of them one of them what is it now about 36 40 hours ago texted me saying look the taliban are knocking on doors they're dragging people like us out and they're killing us so you know that's oh. that and I, I haven't heard from him since and i look I mean, I don't know what's happened to him. And, you know, I mean, it's, this is not, you know, don't think that this is a change of regime. Yes. This is, 
you know, this is this is a vicious death cult that is taking its revenge. And this decision to withdraw seems to have, for a lot of people, just sort of come out of nowhere. There seems to be this hastened departure on the for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, is it as cynical as that? It's hard not to be cynical. Look, I mean, it's... In many ways, this withdrawal isn't a surprise. So it's worth, it's worth looking backwards for a moment, if you'll forgive me. Uh, the advantage of these shows is you have time to explain. So forgive me, I'm going to take a moment to do so. Oh, please do it's worth looking backwards. The President Obama set, an, set a date, or rather set a timetable for withdrawal way back, when was that, six years ago or so. Now, that was a pretty extraordinary thing to do, because actually one of the ways you convince people to side with your team rather than go with the other team or hedge their bets is you convince them that you're enduring presence. You say, I'm, I'm going to be around. I mean, if you, if you told your wife, uh, Matt, that it was a renewable contract with a five-year expiry term, I, I mean, she may have a different idea of what the relationship was about than you did, and she may decide that actually she was going to leave you way before the five-year point, possibly shortly after you just announced that you weren't quite sure you were going to be there forever. Well, funnily enough, I mean, it sounds flippant, but the truth is that international politics isn't that different. You're dealing with people here. You're not dealing with these sort of amorphous entities called countries. You're dealing with individual human beings, and you're asking them to make bets on the future, bets that in a country like Afghanistan will not just affect them, but may well see their children and their grandchildren murdered for the choices you took. So these are very, very important decisions. So if you say to somebody, look, I'm not going to be around that much longer. What you're doing is you're advertising to everybody, start making deals with the other side, start making sure your bases are covered. Because at some point, I don't know when, maybe in a year, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, somebody else is going to be in charge. And even if you're dead, your children will be held responsible for your actions. And so will your grandchildren. Your name will live on. And by the way, your tribe, your clan, your family will also be responsible. So when President Obama did that, he injected, I mean, it was like, it was like pulling the key brick out of a Jenga tower right at the bottom. Now, it didn't yet fall, but it certainly wobbled. A few years later, President Trump began talks with the Taliban, talks that were supposed to protect US troops, not Afghan troops, US troops from Taliban attack. How do you think that makes you feel if you're an Afghan soldier and you've been going on patrol side by side with Americans? Mm. You've been sharing the risk. In fact, you've been sharing more than the risk. The Afghan soldiers this year lost more people dead in combat than the whole of the coalition over 20 years. Right? So the idea that they didn't fight is complete rubbish. They have been fighting harder and harder than anybody else for 20 years. That's worth remembering. And so you've got a, an American president who's negotiating behind the back of the Afghan government for his own troops, not for, the, not for the coalition, including the Afghans. So that's a hell of a blow. And he's negotiating for the release of Taliban prisoners who have murdered Afghans. You know, these are not good guys. Many of them have, have committed horrific, brutal acts absolutely vile acts, and they're in prison because they've been tried by an Afghan court. 
Now, can you imagine if a US president in 1980, at the height of the bombing campaign, Manchester, Deal, London, started negotiating with the IRA behind our back for the release of IRA prisoners and for the sovereignty of Northern Ireland? I mean, can you imagine what a British government would have done? I mean, to say we would have been incandescent with rage would have been an understatement. It would have collapsed any form of diplomatic relation we would have had with the United States. The Afghans were weak and they couldn't, and they had to take it. And then President Biden announced that they were leaving. And one morning in early July, Afghan generals for their regular meeting with the US, their US colleagues in Bagram Air Base, meetings that had been going on regularly for 20 years, people they had grown to respect and trust. They turned up at Bagram Air Base and there's nothing but tumbleweed. There's no generals, there's no guards, there's no cooks, no cleaners, there's no contractors, nothing. In the night, the American forces have left without telling their Afghan partners. Oh my God. So when people say the Afghan forces ran away, frankly, I'm astonished at how long they stood and fought. I am absolutely astonished at how, how courageous they were. Because when the Americans left, they took away with them, first of all, any hope of future cooperation, any trust that they'd had in allies. And furthermore, they took away the battle-winning assets that would train the Afghans to use. Because in the last 20 years, we trained the Afghans to fight like us, which is a really sensible thing to do if you're going to be there, because you want people to be interoperable. You want us to be able to use each other's kit and to understand that when we go into a fight, we're going to act in a similar way so that we're predictable. And that's important because otherwise you're going to end up shooting each other or, you know, you're going to end up having mistakes. So we train them to use, you know, short supply chains, um, you know, very, very fast movement with air power, with aviation, how the military calls helicopters, and to you know move around the country quickly to respond fast. Small amounts of static troops guarding a particular area, and then having special forces and rapid reaction units that can go and reinforce anywhere. But when the Americans took the US contractors away, they also effectively took the helicopters away. Because who do you think serviced the helicopters? Well, that was a contract with a US company because that's quite lucrative, isn't it? So effectively, they removed their ability to reinforce. So over the last six weeks, Afghan forward operating bases around the country have been unable to be resupplied with food or ammunition, and yet they have still fought. They've unable to be paid or to have medical support, and they have still fought. So please, if people are going to claim that the Afghans run away, look at the reality. In 1940, the entire British force in Singapore resigned, surrendered as one to the Japanese forces. And we were equipped, we were fed, we were paid. We knew we had a safe haven, the United Kingdom, and we didn't have the risk that our families were going to be murdered because they weren't with us. These Afghans in the last six weeks have had to decide whether to stand in outposts, remote, harsh, unsupplied, unhelped, and guard those outposts, or to 
do as much as they could to defend their families against what they could see was becoming an onslaught. I, I'm astonished at how many fought. I'm absolutely astonished at the extraordinarily courageous behaviour we've seen from so many. When you talk about people suggesting that the Afghans run away, one of those people is Joe Biden and his speech the other night. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised by the behaviour of American presidents. But given all the things you've said, how did you feel when you saw and heard what Joe Biden said? Well, one president used to say America first. Mm. This one says America alone. That's the most incredible, you know, for people who, I mean, in a way, you're correct to draw the line with Obama. You know, there's a coalition of Obama and Trump and Biden who've all been on the same page when it came to, to Afghanistan. And, and arguably, America's role in, in, in places like these um, and perhaps, you know, a departure from, from what we saw with George W. Bush. So is there a political element to this where Joe Biden thinks, well, actually, I've just won the White House back from the Republicans this is a way for me to underline my appeal with people who voted for Trump. Is there, with all these things, you know, we talk about at the end of the day, uh, these have been about human beings and not uh, amorphous things like nation states, but also part of Joe Biden's um, motivation might just be plain and simple politics, that he's just won it back from the Republicans. This underlines his su support with, with people who voted Trump last time. Well, I was, I was pretty... I was talking to some American military friends who've risen through the ranks, and one of them pointed out that the last two presidents have acted in response, as it were, to be seen to be going against President Obama. Because President Obama did the troop surge, as you'll remember, and that was what uh, effectively stopped, um, you know, turned the tide on on. The Taliban rise in the in in the late well in the early two thousands, and uh, although uh, Secretary Clinton and Secretary Gates were in favour of it and argued in favour of it, uh, then Vice President Biden was very against it, and um, well, what your business would call a well placed source um, said this was not. Uh, this was not a, a, a defeat, as it were, a political defeat that the, vice, the then vice president took well. And effectively, he's making the point that he's reversed it, uh, which means effectively that both Trump and Biden have uh, shaped quite a lot of policy simply in response to Obama, which is, I'm afraid, not the way to shape policy. The way to shape policy is in the interest of the British people. Uh, sorry, or the American people. But then no, everybody should. no, no, no. On the contrary, everybody should shake policy in the interest of British people. <laughs> It'd be a wonderful world, perhaps they did. It certainly um, would. But that's you raised a good point there, actually, because we're talking about America's action. Well, Britain could have stayed, or could we? Once the Americans have pulled out, was it untenable for for for, for the Brits to stay, or, or could we have departed from the White House? Would it have been viable for for for, for the United Kingdom to to stay when when America departed? Look, it's not just two and a half thousand troops. The, the reality is those US contractors who were servicing those helicopters uh, have supply chains, have, you know, uh, it, it's, not, it's not that easy, if you'll forgive me. I think the UK could have stayed had others been willing to do it. But this is an extraordinary indictment on uh, Western leadership around. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just our own country that has spectacularly failed. 
you know, those countries who were with us. This was a NATO operation, don't forget. This is the only Article 5 NATO operation. And if you'll remember, the, the, the point of NATO is the sort of musketeer pledge, one for all and all for one. And uh, that summed up in the, uh, in the so-called Article 5 commitment of NATO countries, an attack on one is an attack on all. And that, despite that having been in existence since I think it's 1947, it's only been invoked once, and that was after 9-11 when uh, NATO got together uh, and voted uh, unanimously that um, this was uh, an Article 5 moment. And so NATO responded by sending troops together as a NATO operation into Afghanistan. Now, some, uh, you know, some countries sent more than others. Of course, that's, of course that's so. But, you know, I remember in, uh, in the days when I was serving there, Romanians and Dutch and Belgians and, uh, you know, French and Germans and Swedes. I mean, you know, countries that aren't usually involved in overseas operations were very committed and, uh, and served uh, often with great distinction in Afghanistan. So this isn't, this isn't just a, a U.S. reversal. This is a moment where countries around the world are going to be looking at the democracies because fundamentally NATO is a, basically a club of democracies, a few sort of grey areas there, but you know what I mean. It's, uh, it's mostly a club of democracies and um, they're going to be looking at us. And they're going to be saying, look, I know that the autocracies will stay because you know, when they make a decision, the dictator can decide. But you guys seem to have lost strategic patience. And if that's so, then what are you offering me? Are you offering me a one-night stand or are you asking me to marry? Because if it's a one-night stand, you're going to make me look cheap. You're going to expose me and you're going to make me vulnerable to further attack. If you're asking for marriage, yeah, sure. You know, a long-term partnership, that's great. Not a one-night stand. But some people in, in America, in Britain and elsewhere might say, well, should we have ever signed up to a marriage? You know, there, there's a sense that retaliation was required after 9-11. How long do we stay there for? You say, you know, in the end, actually, I thought this might have been a kind of, um, you know, a long-term relationship. I didn't realise it was going to be this long. Well, look, I mean, of course you can say that, but you can't pretend to me that divorce has no implications. You know, we've just been getting divorced from the European Union. I mean, we, we know that this has implications, right? I mean, it's not the same to say, oh, well, you know, after 40 years, uh, sorry, after 20 years, it's like we were never married. No, you, you were there, right? You, you've, got, you've got commitments, you've got responsibilities, you made deals, you know, to, to continue the analogy, you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you know, you know they, they don't just disappear because you got divorced, right? And, and the same is true here. You know, you may not like the ongoing agreement, but what grown-ups do is they talk about it and they find a way through. And they may, uh, what is it, consciously uncouple, to use the vernacular. But they don't just walk out in the middle of the night taking the car and, and, and half the bank account. Isn't part of you the know, problem I mean, that, on the one hand, you're absolutely right, that we have a responsibility to these countries and we're there and we're present and then in the middle of the night, they're gone. But the, the problem is, is that these decisions are not aimed at the people of Afghanistan. They're aimed at the people of America and Britain and what those politicians who are totally understand the situation that we're in, involved in Afghanistan and elsewhere are at the same time are saying to voters in America and Britain, actually, we won't be there that long. We're always giving the impression that, look, this moment, the moment it's done, we're out. Wouldn't it be better if we just said that when we get involved in places like Afghanistan, we're going to be there for a very long time. And this is what it involves. And that's not a bad thing. 
But so look, people don't seem to do that. Okay, so look at this. Okay, the US has been involved, and we have been involved for twenty years in Afghanistan, something like that. The last British soldier killed in combat, tragically, was killed in 2013, end of 2013. There's been some uh, accidents since then. A helicopter came down in 2014, killing various people. And, you know, so they have, I'm not saying it was the last death in Afghanistan, but it was the last combat death in Afghanistan. And for the United States, the last combat death was a couple of years ago. I can't remember exactly, but it was a few years ago. You know, this was not, let's not pretend this was a fighting operation anymore, right? This was an ongoing operation. And in that sense, it's relatively sustainable. I mean, I wouldn't overstate it because these things aren't cheap, but but it's relatively sustainable. The major costs are sunk costs, right? They are the trillions of pounds we've spent on buying equipment, on moving stuff over there, doing things like that. And of course, the most important sunk cost, which is a horrible way of putting it, but I hope you'll forgive me, is in the lives of people that we've left behind, the friends that I've buried all the way from pool to our bros. But like all the other sunk costs, I'm afraid, those men are not going to rise again just because we've gone. There is no resurrection that comes with departure. That's not how this works. So all you can look at is the cost going forward. We had to do the same evaluation in Germany in 1945, in South Korea in 1950s, in Japan in 45. We've done it in Cyprus since the late 50s, early 60s. You know, and in all of these places, we have significant troop, troop numbers. I mean, in Germany, of course, most obviously, we had the British Army of the Rhine, 300,000 Brits served in Germany, all the way up to, well, pretty much 1991. Because what we recognized was that had we pulled out in 1950, Germany, which, by the way, was a much you know, deeper state, if you see what I mean, it actually had structural roots much deeper than Afghanistan. Germany wouldn't have held the Wehrmacht, which required, let's be honest, very little retraining, uh, given the experience, the life experiences of many of the men that it recruited, would not have held for exactly the reasons as the Afghans didn't, because the morale wasn't there, because the idea of the future wasn't there. Had we left in 1950, we would have seen Soviet troops rolling over the East German border in days and we would now be discussing what kind of an agreement to make with communist France. You know, this is not an idle prediction. We've seen, you know, we've seen this, we saw attempts at this at various points in the 1960s, not direct assault, but certainly destabilization attempts. So the idea that, you know, strategic patience isn't what win war, you know, isn't, doesn't matter. It's only strategic patience that wins wars. Determination in battle, courage, you know, that's what wins tactical victories. Sure, it's important. Speed, action, determination. That's that's what soldiers are for, right? They are there to turn the moment to the best advantage. But once you've got the moment turned, what you then need is political strategy to buy time, to bed in and to hold the line. That strategic patience in Germany liberated Eastern Europe with barely a shot fired. That strategic patience in Japan turned a very, very repressive, difficult state into one of the world's most vibrant economies. It turned a country, South Korea, which was at the time poorer than Afghanistan, into one of the world's great economies. You know, 
That's what strategic patience does. And that's what we've demonstrated around the world since 1950. And that's why people want to partner with us. If we take away the one, you know, the major thing that people want from us, if we want to turn this into a cheap transactional relationship where we're a pay by the hour partner, then we really undermine our security. Because what makes us strong is not our weapons, you know, the Russians have got plenty of those. It's not our money, the Chinese have got plenty of that. It's the fact that people have trusted us to be fair partners, to be equal partners, and to treat them well, and to liberate them for a better future. We've got to be very careful about throwing that away. You mentioned Brexit earlier. I mean, people will see patterns in these things, even if there aren't any. But it's hard not to see this as an era when Britain is withdrawing from its international responsibilities. Well, I don't think this is a, sorry, I, I was using the Brexit analogy only to only to talk about divorce and the complexity of it. I wasn't, I, I don't think this is a Brexit moment. I don't think, I don't think you can, I don't think you pad it across that, that, that simplistically. Um, but I, I do think that, the, you know, there's been a lot of talk about global Britain, right? But the size of the army has shrunk. Let's talk about global Britain, but we've cut the aid budget. Let's talk about global Britain. We've expanded our embassy network, but shrunk our, the depth of our, our missions in various places. I mean, you know, it's, it's not very coherent. And that's an issue because, you know, the reality is it's not the British people who need to be persuaded that we're players that need to be invested in. It, it, it's others, right? And if they see, you know, these guys aren't idiots, right? <laughs> and, you know, people in, you know, people in, 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 uh, in Thailand, they're speaking to people in Moscow, they're speaking to people in Delhi, they're speaking to people in South Africa, they're speaking to people in uh, Brazil. They talk to each other. We're not at every party. We don't listen to every phone call. They talk to each other and they talk about us. And so they, they see what we're doing. And if one country says, you know, the Brits have cut their embassy from three permanent staff, you know, three UK-based staff to two, and the other one next door says, oh, yeah, they've done the same to me. They're going to notice it. Now, it may not be an issue. It may be a very wise decision to get more locally based staff. But, you know, I'm not saying that these decisions are always wrong. I'm just saying people do talk to each other. And so how we act has an implication. Now, this really matters not because and you brought this up just a minute ago. You know, quite a lot of politicians are looking at, you rightly say, the UK audience, the US audience, whatever. But what they're not always doing is explaining why this is about us. Because, you know, foreign policy isn't about foreigners. Foreign policy is about us, it's about Brits, okay? I have one job, and that's to make the people of the United Kingdom better, safer, more prosperous. That's it, right? I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, people are quite rude about Trump's America first. Well, I'm, I'm afraid I am pretty unashamedly Britain first. But Britain first doesn't mean Britain alone. Britain first means with friends and allies, because we get stronger by having it. You know, we've, we've pushed our border all the way out to the eastern edge of Estonia and Poland. Now that is so much better than having a tripwire at Dover. You know, that gives us days, weeks warning of any potential threat. It makes us much safer. It's like having car bumpers that reach all the way to Moscow. It's great. You know, but if you undermine those alliances, you may sort of get a cheap hit for a few weeks or a few months, but my God, you'll pay for it in the long term. And I'm afraid, you know, particularly a country like the UK, where 
the reality is that we are fundamentally tied into the international community because of our service economy. You know, we we do the law for the world, we do the insurance for the world, we, you know, we're tied in. How the world runs has a direct implication on our own prosperity. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't lose influence. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What are the implications then? I mean, you hint at them in terms of uh, our economy and how correctly you you describe we're exposed to, to the rest of the world. But what about the security implications of allowing the Taliban to, to retake Afghanistan? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm particularly rubbish at predicting the future. So I'm, I'm going to do something a lot easier. I'm going to predict the past. Um, and I can tell That's you what cheating, happened. isn't it? It is cheating. But, you know, you'd expect that of me, Matt. So don't, <laughs> don't come over all coy now. The... Uh, the, um, the Any man who can predict the past and get it wrong. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Try this. Now, look, the, um, the reality is that we've seen this play before, right? We, we know what happens when Islamic fundamentalist um, cults take yeah. control of pieces of land. I mean, we've seen it, right? You want to look in Mali? You want to look in Nigeria? It's called Boko Haram or something similar. You want to look in Syria or Lebanon? You want to look in Iraq? or, of course, in Afghanistan between 1996 and 2001. You know, we, we know this play. This isn't news, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not telling anybody anything they haven't seen. You end up with the kind of vicious dictatorship that we know about. You end up with them having really unsavory friends uh, in people like al-Qaeda and ISIS and East Turkmenistan Islamic Movement, a group you may not have heard of, but that has had in the past conducted attacks against China. You know, you, you end up, you end up with these people. I mean, just as we grow civic society that ends up creating the Women's Institute, these guys grow civic society that ends up, you know, creating the women's prison. I mean, it's just, it's, it's pretty horrific, but it's not, you know, 
This is a play that we've seen time and time and time and time again. And these guys are still allied with them. You know, we know there are Al-Qaeda fighters now fighting alongside Afghan, uh, um, the Taliban in Afghanistan. We know that. We know ISIS is still there. We know ETIM is still there. It's hard then not to conclude that at some point we will find ourselves re-engaged in that part of the world. Well, uh, I mean, look, I really, really hope not. I mean, I think the, the, the initial people who feel the pain uh, are going to be not only the Afghan people, obviously, but their neighbours. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't bring me any joy to say this, but I think that the leaders of some of the neighbouring states have made an extremely bad decision in supporting the Taliban in order to punish the United States. But you may not like, you know, you may not like your neighbour, and you may not like the town policeman, but inviting Al Capone to replace him may well not lead to the results you thought for your family and your business. And, and that's, I'm afraid, a little bit what has happened. We've ended up with a, a drug-dealing, murderous mafia of Islamic death cult holding ground, effectively creating a state, in Afghanistan, you know, effectively, this is a Pashtun, I mean, in tribal terms, this is a Pashtun force. You know, a good whack of Pakistan is claimed by Afghans in the Pashtun tribes. Are they really going to recognize the border? This lot of extremist Sunni Muslims absolutely hate Shiites. Are they really going to leave Iran alone? This group that has partnered, as I say, with ETIM, speaks about the Ummah al-Islamiyah, the community of Islam, very, very powerfully, and about releasing Muslims everywhere and about separate states. Are they really going to ignore what's going on in Xinjiang with the Uyghur Muslim minority? I mean, it strikes me that a lot of these countries have effectively chucked meat at a crocodile in the vain hope that it's going to eat them last. Well, I'm afraid they're now first in line. It's just such a desperate situation, particularly when you see the footage of that plane, people clinging to the side of it, trying to get out. You know, they, they, I, I just can't, well, I can believe, because nothing surprises me, but to see Joe Biden, Jacinda Ardern, you know, whatever I think of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, basically allowing this to happen, I think it's one of the most shocking moments. I think for, for many people, this will be, you know, Iraq was a moment for a lot of people that politicised them and, and convinced them that Western intervention was wrong. The legacy of this decision may, may well be the opposite on a new generation who say, actually, we shouldn't leave these places, regardless of whether we agree with whether we went in in the first place or not. Once you're there, you have a responsibility to stay. Perhaps the legacy of this will be a, a, a reaction to decisions like this, where you have a new generation of people that say, actually, Britain and America, the West, whoever, those with power, those democracies with power, do have a responsibility. And out of this, perhaps, there's some hope that uh, more responsible decision makers are. Well, look, I, I mean, in 2016, I was writing a, a paper with um, my friend Joe Cox for Policy Exchange. Sadly, she was murdered before we completed it. And I, I finished it with her husband and with Annie McGovern. Um, and it's called The Cost of Doing Nothing. And we came at it from very different perspectives. You know, she was an aid worker 
she she had devoted her life to uh, humanitarian causes and I was a soldier. But we came at it from different angles, but to the same conclusion, which is that we always talk about the cost of action. And of course, there's a cost of action. I'm not denying that. Of course, there's a cost of action. There's also a cost of inaction. There's also a cost of retreat. There's also a cost of abandoning. And what we're seeing in Afghanistan is that cost. What we're seeing in Syria is that cost. What we're seeing in Libya is that cost. These are the costs, right? This isn't cost-free either way. And those people who sort of, uh, like those sort of student debaters who just go on about the fact that it's colonialism, it's imperialism. It's not colonialism, it's not imperialism. 750 troops out of an army, an Afghan army of nearly 400,000 does not make it a colony. I mean, this is absurd and it's schoolboy rubbish that I keep hearing from, well, so many people on the left who now, funnily enough, who've shut up about you know pulling out of Afghanistan. Oh, we've got to pull out of Afghanistan, we've got to stop the war. Oh, now we've got to stay, oh right, okay. This is the consequence of the kind of pressure that they have been making on people like Biden for years. This is exactly what it is. So these, what we're seeing, these scenes are just as much on them as they are on, on, on others, because this is what they've been pushing for. There is a strange coalition of Donald Trump, the Stop the War Coalition. Now, that effectively troops out movement, which I understand why you say don't invade Iraq. But once you're there, the most responsible thing is to say, well, stay and finish the job then and, and rebuild and educate and, you know, <laughs> do all the positive work that, that, that troops uh, do around the world rather than just cutting and running. I always thought it was a really odd, well, I don't know why I'm now trying to apply logic to the Stop the War Coalition because it's not no, a particularly reasonable group of people. But for those reasonable people who can get caught up in it, out of yeah. perhaps, you know, a, a, a solid moral position, which is they don't think it's our business or whatever. I would always question that. Well, Robin Cook did that. Absolutely. Robin Cook made a very principled argument against uh, the Iraq war. Um, he was proved absolutely right. Uh, he didn't believe that we'd have the resources to finish the job. He didn't believe that we'd have the commitment. And, and he made a principled stand on that the justifications didn't merit the action. Now, you can agree or disagree, but that was a perfectly... I mean, more than perfectly, that was an absolutely coherent, intellectual, moral argument. What these guys are doing is completely reverse. What about the political implications for the Conservative Party then? Because uh, this may not be at the top of their minds, but it's the sort of thing that allows Keir Starmer to say, actually, I have a far more responsible foreign policy than you do. Uh, we should stay and finish the job in places like this. And it's one of those things that might just allow Labour and Starmer, should they take the opportunity to outflank the Tories on issues like security and foreign policy? Look, I mean, I, I still think the Labour Party, and I'm, I'll try not to be too partisan about this, but I do think in, for many people, the Labour Party is still struggling with the, with the Corbyn years and the feeling that uh, a terrorist supporting anti-Semite uh, might have been made uh, prime minister by one of our great parties is still it still hurts a lot, a lot of people. Uh, we've spoken about it in the past, but, you know, um, I remember having conversations with my wife about what it would mean for the life of us and for our children if an anti-Semite was living in number 10. Uh, what it would, not what he would do, I don't mean that he would sort of start introducing Nuremberg laws, but, but the kind of hatred that it would unleash uh, on the community, you know, was, I think, a reasonable concern. And, and many... And many people in, in the community are still very concerned about it because it has unleashed that. And, and you know, that you can't put the genie back in the box. 
bottle, as you know. Um, so I still think there's a, you know, there's an issue there for the Labour Party. So I don't think I, I don't look at it in those in those terms. I don't think this is a I don't think this is a, a party political issue. If you see, what I, mean. I think this is bigger than that. I think this is a national political issue, uh, and the uh, the problem is that so much of our uh, foreign policy for many years has been about issues, not principles. You know, I, I don't think that we're wrong to stand for equal marriage, for example. I don't think that we're wrong to stand against, you know, shark fin soup or things like that. I mean, I'm not saying these are wrong things to do. They aren't. They're, they're absolutely the right things to do. We should stand for equal marriage. We we should defend, you know, we shouldn't uh, uh, allow shark fin soup. But it, are you really telling me that the principal aim of British foreign policy is equal marriage in Afghanistan. I mean, really? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure it is. I think the principal aim of British foreign policy is, is the prosperity and happiness of the British people, right? I mean, I think that's what it, you know, that's it. And in order to achieve that, we need to build up alliances with friends and allies around the world. Now, should we have should we host civic groups in the UK that campaign for these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Should we give them a platform? Of course we should. Should we turn our diplomats into their campaigners? No. Our diplomats should be campaigning for the interests of the British people. That's literally what they're there to do. That's why we, you know, that's why we have them. Take the point you make about politics, but all these things have political implications and sometimes ones that politicians didn't foresee. It is just yeah. perhaps one of those things that makes people go, not on a grand scale, but people just, it just creates an impression, actually, maybe the Tories aren't that, you know, for the, for basically for the last 10 years, just by default, the Tories have been the party of security and defence, just because Labour wasn't even on the uh, on that area of the political map at all. But now you go, oh, actually, this is a terrible decision. And it's been made by a Conservative Prime Minister and a Tory Foreign Secretary who's still on holiday. You know, that creates an impression about a party's priorities and where it stands. And it leaves an opportunity. And not in itself, it might do that, but as part of other things that people might join a pattern, they might say, actually, I think Keir Starmer might be better on stuff like this. So I think, I mean, I, I think the point that you're making is a valid one, but I think I, think I would look at it slightly differently. I, I think people... And you say that as a Conservative MP. <laughs> Funnily enough, yes, um, I'm trying to be polite. The, um, the, um, I look at it slightly differently. I, I would say that people are beginning to realise again that politics matters. You know, this isn't a game. This is not a joke. It's not an experiment with people's lives. We're not here as government to play with people, whether they're in Afghanistan or in Blythe Valley. We're here to create a strong and stable a platform so that other people, individuals, families, communities, can take their own risks and their own build their own opportunities. That's that's what we're here to do in government, and that's serious. It's dull. <laughs> it requires commitment. It requires thought, and it's not just about slogans. It's about careful, hard yards delivery, and you know much more than some people think. And that's where I think we're coming to. I think, you know, it sounds rather daft to say it, but you know, politics is a serious business because it's not just about my life. It's about the lives of the people I represent and uh, the lives of the whole people, you know, the people of the, the UK. And, and, and they've got to come first.
you know. You're chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. If you were Foreign Secretary, what would you have done? Look, I can tell you what I did do, and you can you can you can judge it. I I have spent the last two or three weeks on the phone to ministers, NGOs, and military officers in Afghanistan and in neighbouring states, those countries that I could talk to, because I spent the last three years building up relations with them. So I've spoken to my opposite numbers in those countries that have parliaments worthy of the name. I've spoken to military officers where military is dominant and I have a relationship. I've spoken to our envoys and our military in countries where I know them. And I've been doing two things. I've been saying, what can I do to help in the UK? And what do your team need to deliver? You're about to go through an incredibly difficult time. I don't know what's going to happen, but my guess is your teams are going to be working 24-7 for a protracted period because we're about to face what could become the biggest hostage crisis the UK has ever seen. What do you need? And I've been calling them and staying in touch. And you know, part of that is to say, you know, literally, what can I do to help? You know, do you want me to call somebody? Do you want me to say something? Do you want me to do something? And part of it is just to say, guys, you're not alone. You know, we sent you to these countries. You're in uniform. You're a diplomat. You're an aid worker. You know, we sent you there and we care. And what you're doing matters. Uh, and I'm with you. Now, I'm not in the executive branch of government. So all I can do is say Parliament is with them, which it is. That's what I did. What about the internal politics of the Tory party then? Because you sort of focused on what the political implications might be for the Tories uh, with the public. But you don't stand happy about this. Tobias Elwood, the chair of the Defence Select Committee, a man who served in uh, the armed forces, isn't happy. Ben Wallace, I don't think, looks happy with the decision at all. Looks absolutely gutted. Very emotional on LBC. What does this do to, to, the, to the internal politics of the Conservative Party? Well, I think there's a lot of conversations going on at the moment as to, as to the kind of outlook we want. Because, it, it, you know, effectively, I mean, we knew, we knew America wanted to pull out and cover that. But, but to be, you know, not have a say. You know, I mean, if there's one lesson from Afghanistan for the Afghan armed forces, it's over-reliance on an unreliable ally puts you in a very weak position. I'll leave you to draw the analogies. I just, it, you know, the worst thing about it is, obviously you think about all these implications. You just, this is just the, 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 the implications of those people's lives that we've now just left there to live under murderous fascists. And we're just going to let it happen. It's one of the most shocking, impotent, awful uh, it's really hard not to just get sort of overwhelmed by the emotion of it and, and to be able to think about it clearly. I mean, I don't know. You've been there. You worked there. You got you know people there. I can't imagine so how can you're I tell able you, to sort of stay calm about it. I, it takes me a long time to calm down before I give interviews. The, the conversation, the most frequent conversation that I've had with people I've served with in Afghanistan when we talk about it, the word that keeps coming up is ashamed. Just ashamed. 
And, you know, there's two, there's two photos that have marked my life and that were seared into my mind and that are going to stay with me forever. And one is the extraordinary photo of 9-11, that man falling from the Twin Towers. I don't know whether he jumped or fell, but if he jumped, there was a man who made a reasonable decision that the fall was better than the fire. Well, we've just seen its parallel in Kabul. As people hung onto the side of those American planes and some fell. And those people aren't idiots any more than that guy in the Twin Towers was an idiot. They know that the chance of survival by hanging on to the outside of an American cargo plane is as close to zero as you can get. But they also know that the chance of survival for them in the face of the Taliban is as close to zero as you can get. But whoever they'd be caught with in Kabul would also be killed. So what we've seen in Kabul airport isn't just cowardice. In some ways, it's a form of courage. It's one of the bleakest. Because I'm 38. I have grown up in an era where now you can argue about whether we've ever actually lived up to this, but the sense that we had responsibilities on the wide, you know, in the wider world, that countries like ours have a duty to other countries. And this feels like washing our hands of our responsibilities. This feels like a shift, a fundamental shift in foreign policy where we say, it's not our problem. We're going to leave you to it. The, the problem with that, though, and you know, this is this is a lesson that, you know, whacked us in the face on 9-11, is that foreign policy isn't about foreigners. It's about us. It quite literally affects us directly. You know, we know, I mean, I can, I can run through, the Fukushima disaster ended up meaning that projectors in the UK couldn't get a certain type of light bulb. So a lot of projectors had to be thrown away. I mean, that's a really basic example of globalization. You know, I mean, this is, you know, we know that the actions of the Chinese state in terms of, you know, semiconductor uh, storage and stockpiling has delayed the production of cars and even washing machines in the UK. You know, we know that radicalism and, uh, you know, hateful ideas spreading fear and death in, in foreign places helped to radicalise that jihadi who killed a policeman in parliament. You know, we know these, these this is not, you know, global, you know, Britain created globalization and it works. Well, maybe not created, but certainly took it forward a hell of a long way. Probably the Dutch created it, but you know what I mean? It, it really works it, and, it, and it's still with us. But now, I, I just, I, you know what, I sort of trying to end on a more positive note, but I, I don't well, know. I'll give you a positive. Okay. No, there is a positive. There's a real positive here, which is that look at human migration around the world today. Look at where people want to go. People don't want to be refugees in uh, China or Russia. I mean, not unless they've done a deal with the KGB. Um, but, you know, they don't want to go there. People don't choose autocracy voluntarily. They agree to autocracy 
through fear of worse, okay? Ungoverned space, lawlessness. I mean, people didn't agree to the Taliban in 1996 because they wanted to live under a fascist death cult. They agreed to it because the alternative was civil war and everybody against everybody, right? People choose, when they can, people choose freedom. People choose democracy. People choose liberal economy. And what we can do as Britain is we can guard ourselves as a liberal economy, as a prosperous and free state. We can increase that by building up with allies. That's, of course, NATO, that's Europe, that's the Five Eyes, that's countries like uh, Japan, India, South Korea. We can defend ourselves, build up that powerful network, and then we can extend to others, some on the margins, some, frankly, way beyond them, and start to demonstrate how this works. We can do this. We really can do this. And not only can we do this, people want this. We know it because we see it. It's, you know, this isn't, you know, if, if you want to know what people are going to buy, look at what they're picking up off the shelves. <laughs> don't, don't believe the advertising campaign. Look at what they're actually picking up off the shelves. You know, whatever Chairman Xi says, people are not choosing Chinese communist dictatorship. When I was in, Be- in Beijing last, I asked a businessman, prosperous man, what was the one great luxury he wanted? And I thought he was going to say a Ferrari or a house, you know, a beach house in Macau or something. And he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, an American passport. Now, that is a prosperous, like really prosperous, prosperous, I mean, way more prosperous than me, which means, you know, in Chinese terms, not the top 1%, but the top 0.001%, right? I mean, really prosperous guy. And what was his single greatest ambition? To go to a free country and to be safe, right? So, you know, we know what people choose. This isn't a secret and we can offer it. But what it demands is it means standing up for principles, not getting trapped in tactical issues. It means investing in partnership and allies and doing this together because nobody can do this alone. And it means having the enduring commitment, the staying power that changes things, because that's what makes British people strong and safe and prosperous. We got rich because we made islands of prosperity around the world. And we can do it again. We can do it again. And I know we can do it again, because that's what people are crying out for. And we see it in the migrant flows every day. Tom Tugendhat. I know this has not been the easiest conversation to have. You're very emotionally invested in Afghanistan. It's a place you know well, and you've got friends there. So thank you. Thanks, Matt. Well, there you go. Tom Tugendhat, able to end on a positive of sorts. Um, But for the immediate future of Afghanistan, very hard to draw any positives at all. And of course, the whole time you're listening to Tom, this is an alternative conservative take on what British foreign policy should be. This decision could have been different with different politicians in charge in different key positions, perhaps. Well, there's no doubt we definitely wouldn't be doing this uh, and neither would our allies. So uh, it's just so difficult to hear someone who's totally on top of it, has personal experience, really understands the issues, is in a position of authority within the British Parliament. He chairs the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, completely disagree with what we're doing. And you wonder sometimes how much governments listen to people like that, particularly those with personal experience in the field. Um, But he's always a fantastic guest. He's always able to express himself so well and sum these up. For those of us who who haven't served in Afghanistan or the armed forces at all, uh, who don't have his depth of knowledge on foreign affairs, he's always such a fantastic uh, briefer, really. 
uh, and uh, did a, did a great job there. And, and of course, clearly very emotional for him to talk about this right now. Um, so I'm very grateful to him for, for coming on and for for giving us such a detailed rundown, really, of, of what this all means when it's also very difficult to talk about. Um, at the end of the last episode. Uh, I was able to announce that the political party is returning to the stage and I am uh, delighted to be able to announce who my first guest is on Monday, the 27th of September at the Duchess Theatre. My first guest of this new era will be Andy Burnham, uh, the Metro Mayor of Manchester, uh, former cabinet minister, uh, one of the leading lights of the Labour Party, one of the most powerful Labour politicians in the country. I'm delighted that during Labour Party Conference Week, my uh, guest will be at this. I can't. I mean, the Duchess, if you've not been, is a beautiful theatre. Um, I can't think of a better first guest. Really, one of the most influential. Uh, and interesting Labour figures of the last 10 or 15 years, and indeed one of the most powerful. So much, and he's never been on the show before. Um, I had booked him before, and then we couldn't do it. So I'm really excited. Um, I've got some great guests lined up, but my first guest of this new era on Monday the 27th of September is Andy Burnham. So you can get your tickets from the NIMAX Theatre's website, or you can just go to mattford.com slash live and follow the link from there. I've also put a link in the blurb so that you can just click on it and buy your tickets now so uh, thank you for listening to this bonus episode i'll keep announcing guests for the live show it's so good to be announcing guests for live shows again it feels like i've not been able to do that for a very long time um so i shall see you in the flesh on monday the 27th of september and in the meantime of course these weekly shows will continue but the live show returns fortnightly in just a few weeks monday the 27th of september with the labor mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. So I'll see you there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.